and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. This week's bonus episode is made up of some of our favorite articles on the subject of alternative energy. Of course, this is damn interesting, so when we say alternative, we really mean alternative. This goes way beyond electric cars. So strap in, but not with a seatbelt. We hope you enjoy it. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And these were some damn interesting weeks. First link. All right. Well, this one comes from Science Mag. It's called Gravity-Based Batteries Try to Beat Their Chemical Cousins. Ooh. And this one kind of blew my mind because it's one of those things that's so simple once you see it, but I'd never thought about it before. The key to remember here is that a battery is not a power generating device. It's just a power storing device. Hmm, So like mm -hmm. the little alkaline batteries that we all know and love, they're not nuclear generators. Someone had to invest a certain amount of energy into charging that battery, and -hmm. you're never going to get more out of it than you put into it. But it does allow you to hold on to that energy and release it at a time and place of your choosing, which is what makes them useful. Mm -hmm. But while we've sort of settled on chemical batteries for everyday use, there are actually tons of ways of storing energy. Like if I stretch a rubber band between two fingers, it's technically acting as a kind of battery. It's storing the potential energy of the stretch until the moment I choose to release that energy by shooting it across the room. Right. So case in point, another easy way to store potential energy is with gravity. You put energy into lifting something heavy, attach a flywheel, and when you drop it, the downward motion spins the wheel and transforms it into a usable kinetic energy. Okay. And there are a number of companies experimenting with this kind of battery as a way to replace large chemical batteries. They're not so much for small in-home use, but for regulating the overall power supply in cities and power plants. Hmm. So one of these companies is called Gravitricity. It's based in Scotland, and they've just unveiled their latest test model, which involves a 50-ton iron weight suspended within a four-story mine shaft, kind of like an elevator. Mm. So from its full height, it can release up to 250 kilowatts of power back into the grid in as little as 11 seconds. And, you know, again, it's not free energy, but what it means is that you can draw energy from the grid during off-peak times, like at night, and then release Mm -hmm. it later when the demands are higher than the grid can normally sustain. Hmm. So Oliver Schmidt, a clean energy consultant and visiting researcher at Imperial College London, points out that lithium-ion batteries can only be recharged so many times before they lose capacity. Mm -hmm. But the winches and steel cables of a gravity-based battery can hold up for decades. Huh. Also, a big hunk of iron doesn't cause nearly as many environmental problems to create or to recycle. So Schmidt has data showing that the long-term cost of a gravity-based battery is $171 per megawatt hour, while a lithium-ion battery costs around $367 per megawatt hour. So it's less than half. I mean, it's a really big savings, assuming we're willing to build these giant elevator-looking things and drop weights (laughs) through them periodically. Yeah, I wonder if the application, I mean, because lithium batteries are obviously used in a lot of these electric cars that are Mm -hmm. starting to get a little bit more mainstream. And it's known that after a certain number of years, they just can't be recharged anymore. You're going to have to replace the battery, which is a pretty hefty investment. But Mm -hmm. what if, you know, the watches that have kinetic power where like 
as you move your arm in daily life, it just kind of recharges the right. mechanism in the watch. What if mm -hmm. we were to have something like that for our vehicles? Yeah, like you'd be required to swerve a few times. You couldn't drive straight <laughs> for too long. <laughs> right. The, the worse drivers, the more aggressive drivers end up having the better battery life. <laughs> we got potential. That's right. It does literally have potential. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, the MIT brains are at it again. According to fizz.org, a new material made from carbon nanotubes can generate electricity by scavenging energy from its environment. All right. Ooh. Scavenging <laughs> how? Well, this is this is a little techy, but it's pretty amazing. They've discovered a new way of generating electricity using carbon particles that can create a current simply by interacting with liquid surrounding them. Oh. Hmm. Michael Strano, the carbon P dubs professor of chemical engineering at MIT, <laughs> which has got to be one of the coolest titles I've ever read out loud. Yeah. Strano notes this mechanism is new and this way of generating energy is completely new. This technology is intriguing because all you have to do is flow a solvent through a bed of these particles, which allows you to do electrochemistry without wires. Wow. Yeah, I mean, sucking electricity from the air sounds very sci-fi. It is. <laughs> I want to believe that it's possible, but it also seems like, I don't know, it feel, my gut feeling on this is like, that's not true. There's no way. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's super new. And again, it is from MIT. And to be fair, this article in its verbatim entirety was posted from two different outlets. And so mm. this seems to be a big deal, according to the curated links on Damn Interesting, which we know are always a big deal. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so this new study in describing the phenomenon, researchers have showed that they could use this electric current to drive a reaction known as alcohol oxidation, which is an organic chemical reaction that is important in the chemical industry. So let's get into how this works a little bit more because you're right, it does sound kind of sci-fi. So this new discovery grew out of previous research Strano had done on carbon nanotubes, which are basically hollow tubes made of a lattice of carbon atoms, and they all have unique electrical properties. In 2010, he demonstrated for the first time that these carbon nanotubes can generate thermopower waves. So when a carbon nanotube is coated with a layer of fuel, pulses of heat or thermopower waves travel along the tube, which creates an electrical current. So that work led him and his students to uncover a related feature of carbon nanotubes. And what they found was when part of the nanotube is coated with a Teflon-like polymer, it creates an asymmetry that makes it possible for electrons to flow from the coated to the uncoated part of the tube. And that movement generates an electrical current. And those electrons can then be drawn out by submerging the particles in a solvent that is hungry for electrons. So to harness this special capability, the researchers created electricity generating particles by grinding up carbon nanotubes and forming them into a sheet of paper-like material. And when researchers cut out small particles, which can be any shape or size, the solvent adheres to the uncoated surface of the particles and begins pulling electrons out of them. So the solvent takes electrons away and the system tries to equilibrate by moving electrons. So there's no sophisticated battery chemistry. It's just a particle. You put it in solvent and it starts generating an electrical field. I think everything you just <laughs> said is a really good bit of evidence as to why I didn't go to MIT. 
(laughs) Yeah, this one's a heavy tech one. But for those chemistry fans out there, I hope this is doing it for you here. Heck yeah. I guarantee (laughs) you there's some fans who are just like, oh, my God, that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, given the size of this, the output is kind of amazing. The current version of the particles can generate about 0.7 volts of electricity per particle. And again, we're talking per- about Ooh. teeny tiny particles, yeah. right? Wow. And in the study, the researchers also showed they can form arrays of hundreds of particles in a small test tube. They call this a packed bed reactor. And these packed bed reactors can generate enough energy to power that alcohol oxidation in which alcohol is converted to an aldehyde or a ketone. So why does this matter? What are they hoping to do with it? Well, they're hoping to use this kind of energy generation to build polymers using only carbon dioxide as a starting material. He's got a related project where he already has created polymers that can regenerate themselves using carbon dioxide as a building material in a process powered by solar energy. So what's the downside? Like, there has to be a downside. The The waste of this process is horribly cancer-causing <laughs> or we suck all the liquid out of the air. Because, I mean, if it works on carbon dioxide, that's another benefit because we have too much of that right now and we need a yes, place. we do. So I'm waiting. I want to know. I want the other shoe to drop. What's the downside? <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, this technology is super-duper new. Right. And we'll have to play with it a whole bunch <laughs> before we figure out exactly how deadly it is to ourselves, the critters we share this planet with in the planet itself. So stay tuned. Right. Like like the igloos, we have to find out the hard way that there's a problem. I don't know. It sounds like we just got a free ticket to turn all of our pollution into electricity. Right. So I'm going to buy a Hummer next week. Oh, oh, there you go. That's right. If it's permission to continue living exactly the way I want and not make any changes, then... <laughs> no offense if anyone actually owns a Hummer. They're very cool, just not for me. <laughs> Whatever. You have like three in your garage. Don't lie. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, oddly enough or not, I too have brought us an article about plants. Yay! Uh, (laughs) You guys recall a couple weeks ago we talked about the California wildfires, right? And how Mm -hmm. just the forests are just this bulked up tinderbox that's going to burn and it's just a disaster and we're all very sad about it. But turns out this article from Shoma Abhyankar from the BBC rejects that false choice between wildfires or controlled burns and actually shows that there is another way. (gasps) So the article focuses on the Uttarakhand state of India, which is in the western arm of the Himalayas, where they've found another solution. They have these huge pine forests there. And it's actually a little bit ironically bitter that they have these pine forests at all because the chur pines were introduced into their ecosystem by British colonizers Mm -hmm. for commercial timber and resin production. They were not native to the area, but now they've completely taken over. And, you know, that was a long while ago. The people who live there now are just like, yeah, those are our trees. We're fine with it. Mm -hmm. But like American pines, they put a lot of dried pine needles on the ground, which is a pretty significant aspect of the fire risk. You've got this kindling Mm -hmm. all along the forest floor that's just ready to go up at any minute. And sure enough, they have regular forest fires there that put lives in danger and destroy local flora and fauna, etc. One of the other things they're especially concerned about there is they have medicinal plants traditionally grown in that region that are being prevented from growing on the forest floor Mm -hmm. because of all the pine needles. Mm -hmm. So as in California for a long time, they have thought controlled burns were the only alternative to out-of-control wildfires, and they've been doing them diligently. But Rajneesh Jain, who is a management consultant with a background in solar irrigation, he said, what if we collected the pine needles and used them as a fuel source? And it's important to note that he's not talking about burning them. He refined an older technology called gasification 
which was originally developed in 1994 by a team at the Indian Institute of Science, originally to deal with rice husk and coconut shell waste, right? They had all this extra material they needed to get rid of. So they said, well, what can we do with it? Mm -hmm. And what they came up with at the time is they put the biomass into an oxygen-deprived environment and heat it to over 1,000 degrees Celsius. And because there's no oxygen, you don't ever get fire. Instead, the biomass just starts releasing this mixture of gases, including carbon monoxide, methane, and hydrogen, which can all be captured for fuel. And then the resulting ash is this high-carbon powder that can be sort of pressed into briquettes for at-home cooking use. So they've been doing gasification for a while just sort of as a a means to an end, right? It was, we need to get rid of this manufacturing waste. A, if we get a little energy out of the process, okay, fine. But Rajneesh was the first to say, well, what if we did it for the sole purpose of generating energy? And he was initially met with rejection, right? The government said, no, 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 the density of pine needles is too low. You don't know what you're talking about. And the villagers he was trying to approach from the other side just thought he was insane. Right. But Mm -hmm. the idea intrigued the Volkart Foundation, which is this investing firm set up by Swiss brothers in 1953 to support poor communities. And with their funding and their help, Rajneesh solved the density problem, which basically amounted to just grinding up the pine needles so they were in Mm -hmm. smaller bits. And in 2009, he succeeded in setting up the world's first nine kilowatt hour pine needle power plant. Wow. So they gather these pine needles, they blend them a little bit, they cram them into a special hot box, and they get gas out of it. They can power a power plant. Wow. And in 2011, he founded Avani Bioenergy and started signing agreements with local electrical companies that, it should be noted, had pretty much ignored him, even though he had a working process. But (laughs) as of 2011, they were required by new laws to source a percentage of their energy from renewable sources. So Mm -hmm. they really weren't motivated to change their business plan until they had to. But then once they did, they were like, oh, this completely works and we should have been doing it the whole time. And he's like, yeah, I know. (laughs) What a genius idea, though. I mean, not only does it get rid of something that is already considered waste and can impede ecological systems, but you're incentivized to keep these trees around. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have nearly the economic impact of burning other materials that they like burning coal. There's a lot of off gassing that they don't capture. Right. This is a much more efficient process in general. So cool. There is one drawback. Due to the mountainous terrain of the Himalayas, all the pine needles really have to be collected manually. It's just too Uh. rocky. You can't have like trucks going over in these forests. So because of that, he focused on putting smaller decentralized plants in each village. So rather than like a normal power plant of 120 kilowatts, Mm -hmm. he put little 10 to 25 kilowatt hour power plants in each tiny village. And it had the added benefit of creating jobs in each village. Yeah. So the women who go out and gather the pine needles are paid two rupees per kilogram, which over the course of a seven hour workday equates to double the minimum wage for the area. So it's actually a really good job. It's just like it's great in all directions. Asha Devi, one of the needle collectors from Hasyudi village, said, I earned 8,000 rupees in the first year and bought a buffalo for milk. <gasps> and, yeah. And that was just in the first year. Once they kind of got their act going, they figured out better processes. She said this year she's earned as much as 17,000 rupees in one month. She's already Whoa. constructed Whoa. an additional room on her house. She's like, this is fantastic. It's the best job I've ever had. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Rajneesh has 12 power plants right now in different villages. He's got another 40 in development. And the answer to the question everybody's been asking, he says in areas where they have installed one of these pine needle power plants, 
they have not had any incidences of forest fires yet. So, Yay! I mean, you know, they got to wait and kind of make sure all the data's in. But it really looks like this is making a difference from a forest fire perspective. And some of the medicinal plants are starting to come back. So it's just Yay! fantastic. Oh, good news. Yeah. That's awesome. It's nice to hear for once about a scientist who is thoughtful about their approach, especially when working with smaller villages mm-hmm. and cultures and things like that. As opposed to like what you usually hear, which is, oh, scientists tried this thing. They didn't understand the local culture Mm -hmm. or the ethnography, Mm -hmm. and they screwed it all up and caused all sorts of capitalistic problems within this community. Uh Uh, But it sounds like this is all upside. So that's very nice. Well, and you got to think like, you know, California is not quite as mountainous as the Himalayas. Like you got Mm -hmm. you could probably institute something like this here. And still have automated pickup of the pine needles. Because, like, I sure I have to be honest and admit, like, yeah, we're probably not going to get a labor force to go out into the forest Mm-mm. and pick up pine needles all day. That's It's a harder sell here where we're not relying on buffaloes for milk. But <laughs> right. I, I think you could mechanize it a little bit and get some of the same benefits and stop the forest fires. And, you know, I mean, it seems like yeah. you could really expand it if you tried. This has such great potential, too, for private application for homesteaders. You know, if you're mm-hmm. looking for an alternative to traditional gas-run generators or things like that, that could be a nice thing to have in your prepper pocket. Oh, for sure. If a tiny village in poverty can run one of these gasification machines, I guarantee you somebody out on the frontier can have one in his barn or whatever. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so everybody get one. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from sciencemag.org. Nuclear reactions are smoldering again at Chernobyl. Oh, no. ruh So 35 years after the Chernobyl nuclear plant in Ukraine exploded in the world's worst nuclear accident, fission reactions are smoldering again in uranium fuel masses buried deep inside a mangled reactor hall. When part of the Unit 4's reactor's core melted down, uranium fuel rods, their zirconium cladding, graphite control rods, and sand dumped on the core to try to extinguish the fire melted together into a lava. It then flowed into the reactor hull's basement rooms and hardened into formations called FCMs, which are laden with about 170 tons of irradiated uranium, or 95% of the original fuel. The concrete and steel sarcophagus called the Shelter, erected one year after the accident to house Unit 4's remains, allowed rainwater to seep in. And because water slows or moderates neutrons and thus enhances their odds of striking and splitting uranium nuclei, heavy rains would sometimes send those neutron counts soaring. After a downpour in June 1990, a stalker, or a scientist at Chernobyl who risks radiation exposure to venture into the damaged reactor hall, dashed in and sprayed a gadolinium nitrate solution, which absorbs neutrons, on an FCM that he and his colleagues feared might go critical. Several years later, the plant installed gadolinium nitrate sprinklers in the shelter's roof, but the spray cannot effectively penetrate some basement rooms. Wow. Chernobyl officials presumed any criticality risk would fade when the massive new safe confinement, or NSC, was slid over the shelter in November 2016. And ever since its emplacement, neutron counts in most areas in the shelter have been stable or are declining. But they began to edge up in a few spots, nearly doubling over four years in room 305-2, which contains tons of FCMs buried under debris. ISPNPP modeling suggests the drying of the fuel is somehow making neutrons ricocheting through it more rather than less effective at splitting uranium nuclei. Wait, so it can't get wet and it can't get too dry? Yeah, it seems like there's this kind of middle spot. It's messed up. (laughs) 
But the threat cannot be ignored. As water continues to recede, the fear is that the fission reaction accelerates exponentially, leading to an uncontrolled release of nuclear energy, uh, okay. which is a euphemism. Yeah, it's going to blow up. Yeah. So addressing the newly unmasked threat is a daunting challenge. Mm -hmm. Radiation levels in 305-2 preclude getting close enough to install sensors, and spraying gadolinium nitrate is not an option as it's entombed under concrete. One idea is to develop a robot that can withstand the intense radiation for long enough to drill holes in the FCMs and insert boron cylinders, which would function like control rods and sop up neutrons. So <laughs> the resurgent fission reactions are not the only challenge facing Chernobyl's keepers either. Besieged by intense radiation and high humidity, the FCMs are disintegrating, spawning even more radioactive dust that complicates plans to dismantle the shelter. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Early on, an FCM formation called the Elephant's Foot was so hard, mm. scientists had to use a Kalashnikov rifle to shear off a chunk for analysis, uh, which is perhaps <laughs> one of the most Russian sentences I've ever read in my life. Right. But, I know, right? <laughs> anyways, so Ukraine has long intended to remove the FCMs and store them in a geological repository. And by September, with help from the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, it aims to have a comprehensive plan for doing so. But with life still flickering within the shelter, it may be harder than ever to bury the reactor's restless remains. Yeah. <laughs> this is one of those things where it's about the only excuse you might have to just say, shoot it into space. Like, you know, yeah. if you've got somebody running in there with a squirt bottle, spraying chemicals on it and running out again, it feels like you, you don't have actual solutions. You're just yeah, right, you're right. not really in control of that situation. Yeah. And the messed up thing is that it's probably too big to really shoot into space or to pull pieces out right. and handle on its own. Like you would have to launch part of the Earth into space, I right. guess, which, I don't, you know, <laughs> whatever. Seems um, like a bad idea, but, you know, so does Chernobyl melting down again so sure yeah. yeah speaking of chernobyl if you have not seen the limited series oh. chernobyl it's incredible and definitely worth a watch honestly it's I, gloomy yeah i started watching it and i just couldn't like i it was really good it was very well done but i was like i just can't emotionally handle watching this right now it's awful yeah me yeah, neither it's super intense like if i'm gonna have to learn or immerse myself in a narrative about tragedy if there's not some kind of resolution at the end right, i'm right. out because <laughs> our current reality is too close to that we, we need happy yeah. endings or just an yeah. ending like the bar is so low right now i right. will take any closure over happy closure you know what i'm saying yeah, like, <laughs> can something just be done right once? right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well with that being said next link <laughs> Next link. link. All right. Well, we're back with Gizmodo again. This one's called That Time a Canadian Town Derailed a Diesel Train and Drove It Down the Street to Provide Emergency Power. Oh, uh, wow. it's, yeah. It says it all in the title, really. It's a fun little tale <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of the kind of wintertime ingenuity that was sadly lacking in our own city last week. It happened back in 1998 when the town of Boucherville, Quebec, was struck by three ice storms in quick succession and lost power to over 1.5 million people in the dead of winter. Obviously, Quebec is no stranger to snowy weather, but the key here is that rather than fluffy little snowflakes, ice storms happen right at that intersection of freezing and melting temperatures and cause a thick layer of solid ice to build up on every surface they touch, which can add thousands of pounds of weight and is enough to bring down tree branches, power lines, and even the towers that hold up those power lines, which take a lot longer to repair than the power lines themselves. Wow. So the mayor of Boucherville, Francine Gadbois, jumped into action. 
It turns out, and I did not know this, that diesel train engines don't actually run on diesel fuel, so to speak. The fuel is used to power onboard generators that create electricity to power the train's electric motors. So basically, they're giant Mm. rolling generators. Mm, And for whatever reason, Gadbois knew enough about trains to know this handy fact. And after a few calls to the Canadian National Railway, the diesel locomotive M420W3502 rolled down the tracks into Boucherville to help. The rail line was close to the town city hall, but not quite close enough. So a crane was used to lift the diesel engine off its tracks and place it on Boulevard de Montarville. From there, it completed the last 1,000 feet of its journey just rolling down the street under its own power, which you don't think about trains being able to drive wherever they want. But of course, outdoor diesel train tracks are just strips of metal. They're not electrified like subway tracks. Unfortunately, the asphalt wasn't equipped to handle the locomotive's weight, so it cut deep grooves into the road that later had to be repaired. But I guess they figured a lot of things were going to have to be repaired after the storm, Mm -hmm. so why not? City workers then ran cables from the diesel engine to the nearby municipal buildings, and its throttle was set to a speed which would produce roughly 375 kilowatts of power at 60 hertz, which was well below the locomotive's maximum power of around 2,000 horsepower, but is the alternating frequency that the North American power system runs on. It wasn't enough electricity to power more than a few buildings, but it allowed authorities to centralize their planning and provided a warming center to anyone who could get there. And a lot of people actually did come, not so much for the warming center, but to take pictures with the train (laughs) that was sitting in the middle of the town square. (laughs) Once they saw that it worked, there was actually a plan to get a second diesel engine in to power a local high school for a second warming center, But that fell through once they realized that the train would have to cross a highway overpass that would probably collapse under its 260,000 pounds. So they just stuck it next to the first one as an emergency backup. You know, the plan wasn't without its drawbacks, aside from the repairs to the road. Both engines had to undergo repairs to their gearboxes when the crisis was over. But in a life-threatening emergency, you do what you have to yeah, do, yeah. at least if you're Canadian, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> and I, it made me wonder, like, could we have done that or is it not even feasible? Like, I don't know what kind of trains we have nowadays. This mm. was 20 years ago and maybe Amtrak doesn't use diesel engines anymore. Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like using diesel to power a generator that powers a electric engine is kind of like cheating. Like, (laughs) can you really call it a diesel train? Like, come on. Right, because diesel engine sounds cooler. It's like, yeah, Yeah, we're a big strong engine. I mean, that's apparently a slang term for, like, rad. Uh, Oh, is it? Diesel, bro. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I do not remember where they say that, but people say that somewhere because it sounds cool. I'm old and out of touch. I haven't even heard that one. (laughs) I've given up. I don't understand anymore. There's no point in trying. I'm just going to sink into my decrepitude and be happy with it. The key to happiness. (laughs) Yeah. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, I'm not going to attempt any kind of segue. This article seems a little different, and that's okay. It doesn't have it to is. live up to anybody's standards. Uh, that's right. <laughs> uh, this one is from Messy Nessie Chic. It's called Hiding a 10,000-Year Clock Inside a Mountain. Whoa. Whoa. As the title implies, there is a clock that will run for 10,000 years. It measures things in years, centuries, and millennia with room for 10,000 in the future. The century hand ticks forward every 100 years. It's, just, it's literally just a giant clock. And uh, a cuckoo emerges once a millennia. So that's cute. <laughs> they, they, they are actually building this thing. The idea started in 1989 with Danny Hillis, who was a polymath computer theorist, engineer, designer. He and Stuart Brand, who was a trained biologist, launched a nonprofit foundation to build the first clock. 
But then it really got going when they got composer Brian Eno, of all people, on board. Yeah. Uh, one of the things he contributed was he created an algorithmic, never-repeating melody generator for the clock's chimes to play every day at noon. And he also suggested a name change for their foundation. They don't say what it was before, but now it is called the Long Now Foundation. And mm -hmm. the philosophy of the foundation, as you would expect, is this sort of idea of let's think longer term than we have been. They say they are summoned to promote long-term thinking and combat what they've declared the prevailing faster-cheaper mindset that's drowning our planet in environmental degradation and socioeconomic strife. Mm. So Alexander Rose, one of the engineers who spent more than two decades working on this clock, says that short-term thinking leads to wasting resources. And we hope that by building such things, they challenge us not just technically but ethically to become better ancestors. Hallelujah. Yeah, it kind of feels like there's not really a point to the clock other than as a work of art and a sort of thing to challenge people and make them think. But at the same time, they say it can run for 10,000 years. So if, you know, horrible things happen and we find ourselves waking up in the Bronze Age, at some point, someone can theoretically find this clock and know a whole lot about our previous society. Huh. And they worked really hard to build certain parts of it out of ceramic. They've really thought about the longevity aspect. It is stored deep inside a remote limestone mountain near Van Horn, Texas, which I went and looked it up. It's about two hours southeast of El Paso. It's just in the middle of desert. There's nothing huh. out there. Rose notes that they chose this place on purpose because remote places generally have created much more opportunity for long-term survival. He said some mm. of the most unique and meaningful objects from history have survived not by intention, but by being lost and then found at an opportune moment. Which is, again, that sort of short-term thinking they're talking about. You know, people raid tombs and whatever because it's like, oh, look, this immediate wealth I can have right now. Not mm -hmm. at all thinking, well, what if someone 6,000 years in the future wants to learn about our society, right? Like, that just doesn't really enter our mindset most of the time. Right. And they made it hard to get to on purpose. The nearest airport is several hours away by car. Then you have to take a several-hour hike along a foot trail in the desert, ultimately rising about 2,000 feet above the valley floor. And that just gets you to the hidden entrance. So this, it gets, yeah, it gets kind of cool at this point. So uh, once you find the hidden entrance, it's a pair of stainless steel doors that act as an airlock, right? So you go through one, seal it behind you, then you go through the next one. Then you have to go through a hundred foot long tunnel in basically pitch blackness. Then you come to a 500 foot long vertical shaft where a spiral staircase has been carved directly into the rock. And uh, uh, this, uh, this shaft hanging downward is where the weights for the clock hang because this thing is massive. <gasps> So depending oh on the time of Whoa. day you go visit, you might see them like right away at the bottom of the staircase, or you might have to go as much as 75 feet up to get oh. to the top of the weight. And part of the climbing, interestingly, requires visitors to turn a turnstile, which winds the clock. And it's just, you know, massive gear. It takes two or three people pushing together to wind it. The computational portion of the clock is kept running on its own completely independently by the natural expansion and contraction of the rock with the seasons. <sighs> Basically, what? you know, in the summertime, it gets hotter. In the wintertime, it gets colder. Day and night cycles are enough on this geologic scale to self-wind it enough to keep the computational part going. That's crazy. Yeah. But to save energy, it will only display that time on its face when a visitor manually gives it the extra power and basically asks the clock what time it is. So if you go visit it and no one has visited it in three months, it will still show a time of three months ago. And then when you sort of like crank the gear or whatever... It'll tell you, it updates. oh, this is what today is. Yeah. Wow. wow. All that being said, the clock is not yet complete or open for visitors, which this article did not make readily apparent. Like, I, <laughs> I, I got kind of sucked into the longnow.org website where they have just diagrams and videos. They have all sorts of cool stuff there. 
And they only very quietly at the very end are like, and we hope to finish it soon with your donation. No. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, what? Like, I was already halfway planning a road trip. I was like, dude, we could go yeah. out there. Like, out in the middle of nowhere is the exact safe place to be right now. I want to take my kids and make them wind this clock. That sounds awesome. Uh, but yet, and, and to be fair, it is making progress, though. The project languished in the design stage for decades until 2016 when, unfortunately, I'm sorry to tell you, Angie, Jeff Bezos invested $42 million as well as donated the land for the project. I mean... Yeah, it's like, and it did generate some bad press at the time, basically along the lines of like, if Jeff Bezos cared about the long term, he'd start paying more in taxes or paying his employees better. But, but this is also something that is speaking to the future. Right. It's, it, you know, I'm always going to be for investing in the arts. I just wish we all had Bezos money to right. invest in the arts. And Bezos Desert Land out in Van Horn, Texas. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, like, I mean, wow. like you said, it pretty clearly wouldn't be happening without him. So it's great mm-hmm. if he's supporting this. And he is. Yeah. And you can sign up for updates about the opening when it eventually does happen. And they noted that members of the foundation will get the first opportunities to go in when it's in. So you can buy your tickets now, I guess, and have a long term <laughs> view that in the future you'll get to visit this place. The way that you described how to actually get into this with all of the different like stages, it reminded me of like the intro sequence to Get Smart, where you've got all these <laughs> doors upon doors upon uh-huh. doors. And I've also been watching a lot of Legend of Korra. I'm rewatching it right now. <laughs> and that totally sounds, I mm-hmm. mean, if not an underground lair, then like an ancient spiritual temple that mm-hmm. like requires, that's just amazing. Yeah. I would love to see this. Yeah, I mean, when you first started describing this clock, I was like, okay, that's cool. They engineered a grandfather clock that lasts a long time. Right. <laughs> but no, this is like a mountain clock. It's, an it's experience. not in the mountain. It is yeah, the mountain. Powered it's using by the mountain. The mountain. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The mountain is actually keeping the time. I mean, that's so cool. Yeah. I have to say, though, the one fear that I had was like, okay, society collapses. We go back to the Bronze Age. A couple thousand years, people are finally starting to get back on their feet. They find this cave. They discover this amazing ancient artifact. They're playing with it. They're looking around. And basically, they do what we did with the Mayan calendar, where they're like, oh, look, this date stops at this particular time. They must have known the world was going to end. And like <laughs> they're going to look at this thing and be like, oh, they had secret knowledge. We didn't. We'd be like, no, we just 10,000 was a nice round number. That's just where we stopped. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the organization does have some other projects that they are doing kind of more slightly more short term. They have a handheld Rosetta disk that contains over 13,000 pages of information on over 1,500 languages. So if you had this thing, Even if you were a future society, you could presumably translate any artifact that you found from our time. Their San Francisco headquarters is open to the public. It includes a small working model of the 10,000-year clock as it will be when it eventually does get put into action, I suppose. And they also have a bar that serves a variety of extremely aged whiskeys. So they're really, they're all about time, really. That's, that's their, yeah, uh, their nice. philosophy. And, you know, you could go hear an original composition by Brian Eno that no one else will literally ever hear again if you get there right at noon. Nice. So. That is kind of worth it right then and there. For sure. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this bonus episode. We hope you enjoyed it and maybe even walked away with a little hope for the future. Maybe. As always, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.